Hello and welcome to episode number one of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. I'm Arup Sen and I'm joined by Simon Lovegrove. Hello, Simon. Hello, Arup. Now, in this inaugural episode, Simon will be discussing the Brexit negotiations with Jonathan Herbst. I'll be joined by Imogen Garner for a run through of the hot topics in the asset management sector. And we'll be also joined by Hannah Meakin, who will be providing updates on market infrastructure issues. Now, both Hannah and Imogen will, of course, be looking at Brexit implications in respect of their particular area. But before we kick off, Simon, perhaps you could explain to the listeners why we have decided to start a podcast. Thanks, Ari. Sure. As you know, we've run the Regulation Tomorrow blog for a number of years now, and we've built up a fantastic following. But we're always thinking of new ways to engage with our clients and contacts. And so we thought a podcast would be a great way to do that. Clients and contacts know that they can get daily updates on regulatory news from the Regulation Tomorrow blog. But with a podcast, we get to sprinkle that extra bit of gold dust, which is real practitioner insight into the big issues of the day. We hope to release a podcast each month covering the big topics in all the areas of financial services, from the retail space to the world of market infrastructure. We'll also be bringing in our colleagues from around the global Norton Rose Fulbright Network for their views on what's going on in their jurisdictions. And there may be also a few special guests along the way. Oh, that sounds like an exciting prospect. So without further ado, here's Simon and Jonathan discussing Brexit. Hi, Jonathan. I just want to start by getting a sense of where we are with Brexit. In your view, talking to your various contacts, where have we got to over the summer in the Brexit negotiations? Well, thanks, Simon. Look, the, the public music is not great, and I'm not going to rehearse all of that. I think what one needs to be careful about is listening to all of the things that have been said publicly. It is true that the two sides are quite a way apart. But I think you need to look at what's happening beneath the surface um, and, and question mark whether some of those points will be sorted out. My sense on the financial services side is that actually there isn't such a gulf between the parties, although the big issue is how it fits into the rest of the politics. But nevertheless, even in relation to our particular area, there are some substantive differences. In particular, you know, the UK wanting comfort on when uh, asset equivalence assessments, if there are any, would be withdrawn and in relation to more generally a stable environment. And the EU, on the other hand, basically saying, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have uh, access to the single market on the same terms as you used to have. And there's been some interesting discussion in the press about what we actually mean by a deal. I mean, people generally talk in very binary terms of deal or no deal, but it's not quite as straightforward as that. That's exactly right. And I think it's a big mistake to think like that. And, and, and the first things first, I think people misunderstand two very different concepts. There's the whole debate about equivalence, which really, arguably, on financial services is not actually necessarily something that's going to find its way into the free trade agreement. That is actually around the equivalence assessments under, you know, EMIR, MIFIR, and the various other provisions. That's one thing. The other thing is what the free trade agreement looks like. And I think that, you know, at least in the EU draft, and he arguably very much even in the UK draft, is not actually about formal equivalence. I think these are two quite different things. They are, of course, very closely linked, but they are two different things. And I think when people talk about deal, no deal, they tend to think in very binary terms. 
And actually, the truth is going to be a lot more complicated. I mean, clearly, the ultimate no deal is there's no equivalence of any type and there is no agreement framework or otherwise. That seems very unlikely. For example, there have already been some transitional provisions in relation to clearing houses, etc. What they really mean is whether the free trade agreement will be agreed or not. And actually, that's quite uh, that's a much narrower question than the overall framework. And just picking up now on, on equivalence for a moment, in particular, to get a sense of where you feel we've got to um, with the whole equivalence um, debate, there's been the very public um, spat between the UK and the EU earlier in the summer. But I think things have moved on. Yeah, they have. I mean, I, I think the public statements from the Commission and its paper in June were pretty blunt, which is, you know, don't, don't expect equivalence under the various um, single market provisions uh, anytime soon. Um, and I, I think one has to take that at face value, at least for the moment. Um, yes, of course, it is true that the UK regime is almost identical to the EU regime and vice versa. But, you know, the realities are that the equivalence assessment um, both ways is bound up with politics. That's just a fact of life at the moment. Um, and so, you know, whatever the regulatory niceties and the logic, the commercial and regulatory logic of having an equivalence assessment, which is very strong indeed, the realities are that politics has got in the way. And I think that's just a fact of life. And one has to take that at face value, at least for the moment. Things could change. But I think if you're, if you're basically asking the question, will there be equivalence under Mithir and Amir and various other provisions by the end of December, that does not seem realistic to me, unless something remarkable happens. And there were some interesting comments from the Commission regarding access to national regimes, which I think are going to become more and more important. I think that's exactly right. I mean, again, this comes back to the sort of binary deal, no deal. The, the truth is, and we already saw this late last year when we had the last round of this, you've got this sort of EU level negotiations, very important, of course, but you've also got member state to UK authorities and vice versa. And the truth is, whether it's transitional, grandfathering, or indeed, as with any third country, and this is very applicable to US um, players and to Asian players, you know, there are arrangements around, for example, uh, wholesale business carve-outs, professionals carve-outs, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think the truth is you're going to look at, and we can already see a much more complicated picture. And it, it is interesting, the point you make, that the Commission have definitely acknowledged that and contemplated it. And that, that just is an acknowledgement of reality. It is not just an EU-level discussion. It's not all in the competence of the EU. There are very, very significant member state discretions. And the precise detail of that of access to markets and access to local um, you know, clients is going to be very significant for firms deciding what to do. And another important ingredient to access to markets is, of course, characteristic performance, the UK's overseas person exclusion reverse solicitation. Uh, they're going to become more and more important post-transition period. I think that's right. I mean, look, the realities are people need to think not just about business going out, they also need to think about business coming. We've spent four years just worrying about getting into the EU. I think the thing people need to also focus on, it's very important getting into the EU, is make sure whatever you do, you're getting back into the UK as well. Uh, if, if that's a, a, a global market that concerns you, which for most firms it does, not all. And um, when you think about timing now, we're really now in the critical phase the EU said that an agreement needs to be reached by the end of October to allow time for the ratification by the end of this year. 
So the EU envisages political approval of an agreement could be given at the next council meeting on the 15th, 16th of October. What advice would you give to businesses waiting on the outcome of the October uh, council meeting? I think it's simple. I think the realities are, and, and anyone who's lived through this the last few years will know what I'm going to say, you've got to assume a no deal. So when I say no deal, <clears throat> no comprehensive deal, okay, forget the national, you know, national competencies for a second. Assume no comprehensive deal, work on that, think about your business, how important are different European markets, work out what the transitionals or grandfathering or indeed permanent solutions are there, and then work out what you are going to do. Most firms have already worked that out, continue to do that. Things may turn out completely differently, but if you work on the worst case, then you can't go far wrong. I agree with that, Jonathan. Thanks very much. So I'm delighted to be joined by Imogen Garner, who's a partner in our financial services team. Now, broadly speaking, uh, Imogen focuses on the asset and wealth management space. So before we tackle uh, with the knotty issue of Brexit, uh, we're just going to have a short uh, discussion about some of the hot topics uh, in, in that particular space. So hello, Imogen. Um, let's perhaps kick off uh, with uh, to those ends. So can you tell us a bit about some of the messages that we are seeing coming out of the S FCA lately? Uh, particularly in relation to the asset management space. Um, yes, hi Arub and hello everyone. So as ever, you know, there's plenty going on there. So I'll try and keep it reasonably short and just focus on a couple of the most recent things. And I suppose one of the, one of the developments we've seen very recently is around effective governance. And effective governance in asset management has been a big thing for the FCA just at the moment. They said as much in their last business plan but very recently we saw Mark Teasdale's speech on culture and governance which he gave at an investment association event and you know it was quite an interesting speech and reflective of the role that asset management specifically really plays in the functioning of our economic system and the safeguarding of financial security really for the people in it. So Mark talked about the purpose of asset management firms and he said that that concept refers to firms business model as well as the social and economic contributions that they make. And so he did re-emphasise that this focus on governance and conflicts has been around for a while and I think that that's fair enough to say actually the competition market study is a, a good case in point which he did talk about but there are lots of other examples but in particular he called out the value assessments that are being carried out by firms as a result of the market study noting that you know as with as with other things this really needs to not just be a tick box compliance type exercise but an exercise in purpose mm. as it were uh, and you know another element that i thought was actually really interesting in his speech was tech related and specifically about diversity in the use of algorithms so specifically where algorithms get used in decision making if you're an asset management firm you're being asked to think about how you would know whether that would or could result in disadvantage to minority groups for instance so you know there's a lot to think about packed in there and um, I, I really feel the FCA's focus on asset managers just isn't going anywhere. What about at the EU level? Um, what would you say are some of the key horizon scanning points over there? Okay well at EU level I mean where to start? Um, there are 
a number of reviews that the Commission is thinking of conducting in the upcoming legislative term. So, you know, it's looking at whether a review of the USITS directive is, uh, is needed in the context of sustainable finance or the CMU. And of course, it's also looking at harmonising the disclosure standards of the USITS and the PRIPS kids. So very topical there. But there's a lot going on in the world of AIFMD too. So probably listeners will have seen or heard about the letter that ESMA sent to the Commission in August, making its views known on quite a few points on AIFMD actually in the context of the AIFMD review. And, you know, of course, the letter looks at things like general harmonisation between the AIFMD and the USITS directive. It always was quite an interesting result, I felt, that in some areas we had more granular requirements in the institutional space compared to the retail space. So mm. that particular element has been out there for a while. It's been in the offering for a while. But the other area that has garnered quite a lot of attention relates to delegation and whether you know, those very established models that the asset management sector operates, um, operates using might come under additional pressure. It's an interesting one in the context of Brexit, of course, which is what some in the market really see as the, the origin of these moves from ESMA. But delegation, of course, affects others too, you know, notably the US, Asia, where it's really commonplace to be managing European fund assets under delegation. I think we just have to see what's going to happen. But you know, the macro point here really, I think is on timing. Changes to the European framework, we all know that they they take quite a while. And there currently isn't really a timeline known for further steps in the IFMD review, let alone when the Commission might publish a review proposal. So on delegation, all I would say is there are, you know, there are some statements out there that sort of prima facie give rise to concern, but nobody's really pressing the panic button. Um, or not just yet, at least. Okay, and you, uh, so obviously you alluded uh, to that, that probably the hottest topic at the moment, so you alluded to Brexit there. Um, now, we've actually already heard from Jonathan in this episode about some of the sort of macro considerations that are arguably affecting the entire sort of financial services space, but particularly uh, in respect of asset managers, and, and I acknowledge this is sort of crystal ball gazing a little bit but do you think there's any there's going to be any key areas of divergence here in the UK post-Brexit in that in that asset management space? I mean that's a really interesting question and in short I think the answer is yes I mean we already know that we'll be seeing some divergence around the whole PRIPS space the PRIPS regime has never been especially popular and actually the Treasury made it pretty clear back in July that there are plans afoot to address some of the some of the really vexing points so it looks as if the FCA is going to be able to narrow the scope of PRIPS so that certain products don't don't get treated as PRIPS. And they'll also be looking at the prescribed content of kids to make sure that mis that, that whole question around misleading performance scenarios, um, make sure they're not included. Um, the other thing is that there'll probably be an extension of the exemption from the kid requirement for USITS for another five years. The other area we do get asked about is, is the sustainable finance space. And that's quite an interesting one too, and an area where you know, there is quite a bit of practical uncertainty for UK firms. And that's all based on the fact that various elements of the EU's sustainable finance package had been actually included in an old, in the old in-flight legislation bill, if you remember that, and that fell between the parliaments, didn't it? And so what we're actually left with is this situation where some elements of the 
EU taxonomy regulation will be on the UK statute book, but not all, and the SFDR won't be. Um, so the big question mark there is about what the UK is really going to do. And I think probably, you know, the wider point is, well, actually, the UK still has to comply with its obligations under the Paris Agreement. And so, you know, every indication from the government is that it's going to do something in the UK, which is going to be completely consistent with this. So I don't think anyone is expecting an entirely separate set of standards to be developed here in the UK in that area. Thank you, Imogen. Um, it's interesting you point that out. So it, it sort of it feels on, on the one hand that, that things things may stay the same, but but they do reserve the right to sort of make things different. Um, but I guess uh, it's very much a case of watch this space. So thank you very much. So I'm delighted to be joined by Hannah Meakin, who's uh, also a partner in our financial services team. Uh, Hannah, um, amongst advising on, on many issues, does, does uh, tend to specialise on markets related issues. So uh, in today's uh, short chat, uh, we're going to be uh, discussing how Brexit uh, is impacting on that space. So hello, Hannah. Um, so maybe we can kick off uh, with our first question on this. So Hannah, what do you think are the key concerns for market infrastructure players as a result of Brexit? Hi, Arup. Um, I, yes, I, I mean, I think the key concern is their ability to continue to trade in the financial markets. So whether that's the organised financial markets or outside of those with counterparties, and to do so without those markets being disrupted. And this is particularly challenging in the market space because there's a complicated ecosystem of services involved with the trading and post-trade processing of any single transaction each part of which is heavily regulated by legislation that previously recognised Europe, including the UK, as a single whole, and the rest of the world as third countries. So market participants and industry associations have done a huge amount of work to try to overcome some of the obstacles, but there remain some really key issues, the most significant of which I think are the trading obligations, which dictate where certain transactions can be executed. So the first one is the share trading obligation. And the problem with that is that shares issued by an EEA company, but listed or traded on a UK market, would have to be traded by an EEA investment firm on an EEA trading venue or SI, whereas UK investment firms would only be able to trade them on UK equivalents, thus splitting the liquidity in, in those shares. For UK branches of EEA firms that are in the temporary permission regime, it's even more of an issue because they're subject to both the EEA and the UK's obligations. And to comply with both, they would have to trade some shares on SEFs in the US. Various ways of trying to divide the stock of shares and the possibility of a more flexible interim solution have been posited, but remain mere possibilities. On the uh, derivative side, with the derivatives trading obligation, the question is more about where a derivative that has been mandated for trading, such as a liquid interest rate swap, um, that has been entered into by an EEA party on one side and a UK party on the other, can be traded. So each party is required to execute that transaction on a trading venue in its jurisdiction, or an equivalent third country trading venue, which again makes the USFs um, the lucky beneficiaries of this cross-border business. Mm. So yeah, it does. It does certainly seem uh, yeah that the, the, there's quite a lot to consider really uh, in, in, in terms of um, how, how market access might be granted. And I suppose 
Further to that, um, obviously equivalence being uh, a key key way in which market access can be attained, uh, obtained. And um, what advice would you give to uh, market participants who are currently awaiting equivalence determinations in respect of MIFID? I think most market participants realised some time ago that they couldn't rely on equivalence arrangements. Even if they thought they might be granted eventually, they, they couldn't really afford to wait for them. So that's why we've seen so many trading venues and other entities moving parts of their business to Europe and some of the European trading venues seeking recognition in the UK. That's not to say that market participants are no longer keen for there to be equivalents because some of the solutions that have been adopted are not necessarily as optimal as the previous arrangements. For example, in some cases, liquidity has been split between two markets um, or market operators are operating two trading venues with essentially duplicated costs. And some firms have had to reorganize the way they access key markets, sometimes putting in fairly convoluted chains of entities in order to be able to get there. So much of this has already been done and at some uh, effort and cost. So it's not entirely clear whether any or how much of the arrangements may be unwound if there were equivalents, but equivalents could certainly help to resolve some of the remaining issues and to simplify things. Um, particularly, I think the share and derivatives trading obligations that we talked about earlier. Mm. No, definitely. Um, last question for you, Hannah, if that's okay. Um, so I suppose just on a kind of, you know, taking a bit of a step back and, and sort of applying a bit of a macro lens, um, what, what impact do you think that Brexit will have, you know, more broadly um, on the market infrastructure landscape? Well, it's obviously impossible to, to know at the moment, um, especially when there's still a possibility of equivalence or some type of agreement, however uncertain. Um, but I think there are two things that we can say. Um, first of all, I think national borders will be more relevant and it will therefore be a more complicated regime, almost by definition. Um, in other words, what you can do and how you do it will be very dependent on where you are, where your counterparty is, where the trading venue on which you're trying to trade is. Um, that will dictate um, actually which trading venue you might be able to use or which broker you might need to, be able, you might need to use in order to get there. Um, and which uh, clearinghouse will be relevant to you. And it would also play into um, obligations like reporting. In other words, um, what will you, which uh, authority or entity will you need to report to and, and how will you be able to do that? So as I say, I think it, it will make for um, more, more relevance of national borders and, and more complexity mm. as a result. And yeah. the second uh, thing that I think we, we probably also know is that, and I guess this kind of ties into the first point, but that business and liquidity will be more fragmented across different trading venues. So this isn't necessarily a negative consequence, um, but I think the point is that where London may previously have been dominant in some markets, that dominance will, will be more dispersed in the future. Interesting. Um, Listen, Hannah, thank you so much. That's, that's really informative. And I think that's given our listeners um, an awful lot to think about. So thank you very much, Hannah. So that brings our first ever podcast to a close. Thanks to all of our speakers for their time. And thank you also for tuning in. Please visit regulationtomorrow.com for daily updates on financial services news and information about upcoming podcasts and other Norton Rose Fulbright events and thought leadership pieces. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's show. See you next time. <laughs>